Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? Uh, I am here only powered by Hot Ribena because I have not been well at all. And I've just had so much hot ribena. It does help. You can actually get words out, which is always helpful when you're doing a podcast. Honestly, I had decided it's been a very busy couple of weeks. I have pushed myself too far, it's fair to say. And I just thought, right, this weekend I'm doing nothing. I'm literally just going to crash, get better, and then all systems go again on Monday. And then Saturday morning, I ended up spending four or five hours in hospital with my mum. She's okay now. That's all fine. And I got back from that and I just thought, oh, just so I just feel so rough. So I got changed, put on my comfy tracksuit, got out my tub of Hagen dazs And literally as the spoon was going into the Hagen dazs a friend who's had some horrible things happen to her texted me to say she needed she needed me. And so. <laughs> I just said, can you give me 30 minutes? And like, mainline this Hagen dazs And then I thought, I can't actually not take 30 minutes to see her. She's, she needs me. So went upstairs, got changed back into my normal clothes and out I went. So I've had yesterday, I rested. Well, I decided I'd walk the dog and ended up walking them uh, her four miles. I don't know why I did that. And I had to cook lunch for the family. But apart from that... I rested. I think that was very important, but my throat is on fire. So I'm not, I probably sound quite weird and I'm not going to talk too much, but honestly, I've got some great books to talk to you about today. Some absolute brilliant ones. So the first book I've got for you is Arthur and Teddy are coming out by Ryan Love. Then we've got Looking Glass Sound by Catriona Ward. Then we've got The Change by Kirsten Miller. Death of a Bookseller by Alice Slater and The Burning by Jane Casey. Plus, the Facebook group has been so busy talking about how to help somebody that message in. I'm getting a few messages now from people with sort of book related agony aunt queries. Last month, there was one about somebody who was struggling. They'd been through some difficult times and was struggling to get their sort of reading mojo back. And there were lots of suggestions for that. Well, this week, someone is asking about when do you actually stop reading a book? When do you just give up on it? And the Facebook group came to the rescue with that one. Absolutely brilliant. If you've got any queries you'd like the Facebook group to answer, just email me at quickbookreviews at outlook.com. We are there to help. But let's get started. So book number one, Arthur and Teddy are coming out by Ryan Love. And Ryan, honestly, I was uh, due to interview him and again had to go take my mother to A&E. And he very kindly put up with moving the time. And then my son started singing while we were recording and I had to go and shout at him. And I just there was a whole series of events. And Ryan just sat there smiling and just being wonderful. So that was very good. And in fact, Catriana also, I had to rearrange her interview and we had some issues with her I think she was in Italy or France and the weather was not good there were storms there were power cuts so it 
this this podcast is brought to you by blood, sweat and tears and lots of gin. Anyway, let's deal with Arthur and Teddy are coming out by Ryan Love. And let me read you the blurb of this glorious book. When 79-year-old Arthur Edwards gathers his family together to share some important news, no one is prepared for the bombshell he drops. He's gay, and after a lifetime in the closet, he's finally ready to come out. Arthur's 21-year-old grandson, Teddy, has a secret of his own. He's also gay and developing serious feelings for his colleague, Ben. But Teddy doesn't feel ready to come out yet, especially when Arthur's announcement causes shockwaves in the family. Arthur and Teddy have always been close and now they must navigate first love's heartbreak and finding their place in their community. But can they and their family learn to accept who they truly are? And let's have Ryan read us the first few sentences. Everything looked as perfect as it could for what might be their final family meal together. They hadn't all been together since Arthur and his wife Madeline had celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary last month. The happiest most perfect couple had been toasted and spoiled by friends and family at a lavish party thrown by their two children, Elizabeth and Patrick. Today, Arthur had been up since 6am pacing the house. It had been another long night of broken sleep. Oh, wonderful. Yes, this book is a hug in a book. Yes, it's got very serious themes, of course, but... The joy that I got from interviewing Ryan is the joy that comes out from this book. It, he's a lovely guy. It's a lovely book. It's just lovely. And um, yeah, I thoroughly recommend it. But enough of me waffling on. Let's talk to Ryan now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome today Ryan Love, whose fabulous book is called Arthur and Teddy Are Coming Out. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Hiya, Philippa. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real, real thrill to be here. Oh, well, it's a thrill to have you on. OK, let's start with the first basic question. Can you give us a summary of this glorious book? So Arthur and Teddy Are Coming Out is a dual perspective story focusing on 79-year-old Arthur Edwards and his 21-year-old grandson, Teddy. We join them at obviously two very different stages of their lives, but they've both got a secret, which is that they are both gay and we kickstart with Arthur coming out to his family and the sort of domino effect this has as Teddy is struggling with his sexuality but finds inspiration from his grandfather but also sees the reality of someone coming out and the sort of panic kicks in and we sort of follow their stories from, from there. And where did you get the idea for this? Oh gosh, I knew when I started that I was going to use some of my own experiences of, of coming out and, and that sort of stuff. A lot of it then sort of stemmed from conversations that I had with with my mom about her her father um, so her parents died when she was 16 so I never got to know my grandparents on that side so I was always really intrigued as to what they would make of me what our relationship would be so I had this idea of this just this grandfather figure in my head for so long who was like this dream this dream grandfather that you know I just would would have loved to have had growing up and someone I would connect with and you know just someone who was there to give you that life advice that that I imagine they do and then I read a story, it was during lockdown, and it was a 90-year-old man in America who, who came out. And I was just so touched and inspired by this, this man's incredible bravery. Mm -hmm. And then the two, the two just kind of merged together where I was like, gosh, this grandfather could do this, but also be a huge sort of inspiration to the younger character who is struggling as well and doesn't want to obviously end up being 79 and not living his best life. It struck me as interesting because for me now, if you're telling someone that you're gay, for me, it's just standard. It's just there's almost, you know, it, it's not the coming out that it used to be. And right. yet I can see for the individual and depending on circumstances, it is still very much a thing. And I suppose it depends where you live yeah. and your family. But did you... Can we talk about your experience? Was it, was it quite a thing for you to go through? Yeah, it was. So I'm from um, Fermanagh, which is in, in sort of West Northern Ireland. So I'm from a very, very small rural, rural little place. So um, yeah, that environment definitely made me second guess everything. Um, and perhaps it wasn't so much an upbringing where I was like, mom has cousins who are gay, dad has family who are gay. You know, it was just something then that throughout my teenage years, I then built up into something that left me in, you know, a dark place. And I went through a lot of bad stuff in my teenage years then with depression and, and mental health struggles. So 
it became a quite a major thing for me that looking back on it is probably one of my biggest regrets because I turned it into that mm. based on, on my sort of internalized fears and projecting my fears then onto my parents and family. You know, I'm the eldest of five, so and I, I just didn't really know what to expect. And yet they were the best about it. So it's like, it's one of those things now where you look back and, you know, if someone asked me my biggest regret, it is actually holding off so long, thinking and fearing that I would get a reaction other than the love that I did get. So, I, you know, I, I've been exceptionally lucky in that respect because there are, you know, like you say, people who, who don't get that even still today, you know, whether they're from rural areas or not. Um, and everyone's sort of journey to, to that point is so unique and everyone's coming out story is so unique which is one of the things, you know, that I've really learned along the way when I moved to London and was able to make more gay friends and sort of learn their stories and share their experiences. You know, we all go through something so different to reach that same point of sort of acceptance of ourselves, but then acceptance for others. And that journey of constantly having to come out to people, you know, who you meet along the way and new friends or colleagues and stuff like that, You're, you feel like you are constantly having to, have that moment of going, okay, I have to, I have to do this. I have to come out again and, and say that to someone. Mm. So yeah, a lot of it was sort of trying to showcase some of those stories, you know, within the various characters, but to give someone perhaps, you know, a reader who mightn't be out that little bit of hope that you can have, you can have this, like, you know, there is happiness and light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not just about someone being young or it's just whoever you are just to, Accept yourself and be accepted. Yeah, not even just sexuality. It's it's just, I hope the story resonates even just beyond that of going, no matter what age you are and there's something you want to do, go, go yeah. and grab it with both hands because, because life is short. Was it uplifting to write the book and sort of reflect on all that you've gone through? I can imagine you both sort of crying and smiling as you were writing it. Do you know, it really was. It was a really lovely sort of, in the best way, therapeutic experience because I was able to sort of reflect on my own experiences and take the best and, you know, not dive into the the worst sort of, you know, the, the mental health stuff too deep, but just to make sure that it was there within, within you know, subcontext as well, just to make sure that, you know, I felt like I was doing the story justice. Yeah, it, it was a really, it was a really lovely experience because at the time when I wrote it, it was, it was sort of peak lockdown. And I really just needed an escape and something nice. And and that's why I really focused on the sort of warmth of it and wanting to, to write something that I needed at that point. So it's really nice now to sort of be, you know, on the other side of the madness that we've just all experienced and to sort of have this little memento that's like, okay, that was a really bad time for the whole world, but I managed to escape into this little world that I, that I created. And now it's here for other people to to enjoy as well, hopefully. And when you decided to write it, which character jumped up first in your mind? Was it Teddy or was it Arthur? It, it was Arthur. It was, it was again, that mm. grandfather figure that I had just been really longing for and really just wanting to, to create this for myself, this person who would be my, like, idol, I imagine, who I look up to and just, you know, like the head of the family who looks after you and you just, yeah, is just there for you. Because the stories I've heard about, you know, my, my grandfather... And then even my other grandfather on my my dad's side, who died when I was three, so I never I never had either side. And it's just hearing those stories about both both grandfathers and sort of going, okay, I really just want to bring the best of these two men that I've heard about, and give myself this figure, and then hopefully other people who perhaps don't have their grandparents anymore, because again, you know, during COVID, I so many friends lost grandparents as well, you know. So it was like, this is this figure who I hope feels like someone we've lost and don't have with us and you sort of go gosh yeah that reminds me of of my own and I think it's really interesting these stories of our identity when we're young we're often told stories about family members and what what's happened and that's not necessarily the time you want to hear them right. but then as you get a bit older and you want to know more about where you come from that's the time you want to to hear those stories Completely. So, um, yeah, mom has always been someone who shared a lot of stories about about her parents and family. So I've always had a real, real sort of interest in in those in those stories. And then I dived into um, my family history and did a family tree. So I was really, you know, absorbed in this world of 
of um, the extended family and great, great, great grandparents. Like I was back in the early 1800s, wow. you know, looking at records. And yeah, so that sort of side of things always really fascinated me. So being able to just even go back a little and have this elder character who in my head, you know, I have all these experiences and stories that I imagine him having and just being able to get a little flavour of, of that sort of character was was a really lovely experience. And when you'd got these characters in your mind and you decided, right, there's a story in this, were you extensively plotting it out or were you just jumping in and seeing where the story took you? Yeah, so this time around, um, I tried to take a little more care and sort of have a clear idea of the characters in my head. So I was making some character profiles. So I spent about two weeks prior to writing, just really making sure that I had a a good idea of who they were because I wanted to do, you know, both of them justice because, again, I don't have the, the life experience of a 79-year-old man. And again, I'm 34 now. So writing a 21-year-old, I was like, gosh, I actually need to put myself a little back there just to make sure that I, you know, remember how I was feeling because I've always been told that I have a bit of an old head on young shoulders, um, which I think actually ended up sort of <laughs> nearly describing how Teddy is because he's been sort of raised by by Arthur and his, his grandmother a little. So he's, he is a wee bit older than, than his years. So so once I had a clear idea, um, I sort of knew where I was going and was able to dive into the first draft and sort of, you know, just get cracking. And it was a, you know, it was a really lovely experience to write it. And one that I learned, I learned because I did a manuscript before I started this one that didn't go anywhere. So I sort of saw that as my learning experience and sort of took the best of, of what I learned from that in terms of plotting and just making sure that I was aware of what I was doing with each chapter before diving into it, because I am a bit of a, a person who rushes into things and tries to run before I can walk. <laughs> so that was a good experience and sort of grounding to go, do you know what, you need to actually know what you're doing here. And I'm sure other people can do different ways. But for me, this one definitely allowed me to to get that first draft down and understand the story I wanted to, to sort of tell people. And did the story then change at all once from your initial concept? No, it really didn't. It's so, so little. Yeah, it was very much what it, what it is now in the first draft. So, um, yeah, I was very lucky that uh, the editor I worked with as well sort of knew straight away what I was trying to say. And there was nothing that really changed where I was like, gosh, I'm disappointed with that or I didn't think of that. It's fundamentally what, what it was in that first draft. Have the characters, have Arthur and Teddy stayed with you after finishing writing? Yeah, they, they really have. Gosh, I think we're coming maybe 20 months since I finished. And every day where I'm talking about them and thinking about them and not even just those two, the other characters as well, and thinking what they're up to and how could I revisit some of them? Because a few people have said, gosh, I want to read more about some characters like Oscar or Madeline, and I'm like, gosh, I would love to as well. So they're definitely living in there. And at some point, I I really do want to sort of revisit some of those other characters who are on the sort of sidelines a bit, because I just love them so much. And as we're recording this, we are approaching publication day a couple of days we away. Are. When this interview goes out, it will be after it. But yes. how are you feeling? Do you know what? Um... Really excited. It's been the most incredible experience. So I, I came into this knowing absolutely nothing about what to expect. And one of the first things that I said to my agent and editor was that I just really, really want to savor every single experience and just to be as be part of as much of it as possible because you know you have the chance to work with people who who know what they're doing and can teach you so much. And just being able to to learn from everyone along the way. You know, whether it's publicity, marketing, your editor, you know, going to be part of, you know, hear the audiobook being recorded. I've just savored every little opportunity and been like, please, please let me have this this experience because, you know, you're a debut mm -hmm. once, you know, and it's it's just one of those things you just want to, yeah, just take it all in, absorb it and really just cherish every second. So, yeah, Thursday is approaching and, yeah, I'm hoping to sort of, just enjoy the day without without getting too stressed or caught up in anything and just hope everyone, you know, enjoys it then. <laughs> What's been the biggest surprise for you in the whole process of getting published? I think um, just the period of time. So, I, I, again, like I say, I just had no idea of everything that went into one book. And it's it been really sort of eye-opening to go, wow, there's so much more to it than I think 
a lot of people, you know, understand. So especially people who have no real, you know, interest or knowledge of it at all. You know, and that includes me on my own wider family who, you know, and it's been lovely being able to be asked questions about it and and tell them about the process, you know, and things like uh, different drafts or line edits and copy edits and, you know, just, yeah. So my, for myself, it's definitely been learning that whole thing and just seeing the amount of work and people who are actively involved in bringing, you know, you from a, a Word document to an actual book over over a year and a half. With, you know, that's been that's been really incredible to sort of learn about and watch the whole process. And normally your day job, if we can call it that, you're in music PR, I believe, when you're not writing your book. I presume it's a very different writing process. Yes, <laughs> it's been it's been nice to sort of um, just sort of zone into a different world, you know, where you you create everything yourself and you can especially when things have been so dark for a couple of years. So being able to just try and make it as light as possible and have this escapism, even though it's not, you know, it's not a mythical world or a dystopian world. It's very much 2023 in my head. It's real life. But you can make it happy for, for these characters and then hopefully anyone reading it as well. Yes, absolutely. You do that very much. Uh, was there a particular playlist you had on when you were writing this book? <laughs> do you know what? I'm awful with that and I literally had the radio on in the background um most mornings um because if I start on a playlist I am so terrible at stopping at changing so I tried to zone out of music as much as possible and just really lose myself in the writing um so I'm I, I was writing at home at the time and it was obviously quite a busy house because again people were were all about um so I got really good at being able to just sit anywhere mm. and even without headphones just to zone out completely and and sit and write and people would be like call him a name and I'd be like yes sorry and they're like gosh you how are you doing this how are you ignoring absolutely everything going on around you I'm like yeah I really don't know but it's really easy <laughs> and quite frightening how I'm managing to ignore you all so well <laughs> And of course, Arthur and Teddy are going to be a huge success. So what's next? What are you working on next? Well, fingers crossed. But um, yeah, so I'm working on book two at the minute. Um, definitely we have hopefully some more elderly characters who people will fall in love with. I'm, I just adore them so much and, and been able to, to sort of bring characters who have such a history and story to tell. Because, um, you know, I have so many great aunts and uncles and... I just adore the stories and the the wisdom that they have and, you know, have always sort of shared with me as well. So being able to just sort of tap into some of that and put put that life experience into characters who who I can imagine really wanting to spend time with is just one of those things that I, I love and want to keep doing so much. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, we come to the final question, which is the crucial one on this podcast, Ryan. So prepare yourself. <laughs> what is your biscuit of choice? What biscuit powered the writing of Arthur and Teddy are coming out? It's a really boring one, but it's a McVitie's chocolate digestive. Nothing boring about that. That was me. That was me. The, the packets were vanishing. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of fuel for the writing. There was. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that's great I just really look forward to hearing about everyone enjoying reading your book uh, Ryan Love whose wonderful book is called Arthur and Teddy are coming out thank you so much thank you Philippa coming up one more author interview more book reviews and just what did our Facebook group say about when to stop reading a book selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now we're on to the next book, Looking Glass Sound by Catriona Ward. You know I love Catriona's books. You know I do. They are dark and twisted and they, you always think you know what's going on. And then it turns out you didn't at all. I mean, the first book I read of hers, The Last House on Needler Street, that blew my mind. That is still standing there as one of the best books I've read. I thought it was uh, incredible. And this one just, yeah, it just shows how good an author she is. Let me read you the blurb. In a windswept cottage overlooking the sea, Wilder Harlow begins the last book he will ever write. It is the story of his childhood companions and the shadowy figure of the Daggerman who stalked the New England town where they spent their summers. Of a horror that has followed Wilder through the decades and of Skye, Wilder's one-time friend who stole his unfinished memoir and turned it into a lurid best-selling novel, The Sound and the Dagger. This book will be Wilder's revenge on Skye, who betrayed his trust and died without ever telling him why. But as he writes, Wilder begins to find notes written in Skye's signature green ink, and events in his manuscripts start to chime eerily with the present. Is Skye haunting him? And who is the dark-haired woman drowning in the cove whom no one else can see? No longer able to trust his own eyes, Wilder feels his grip on reality slipping and he begins to fear that this will not only be his last book, but the last thing he ever does. And let's hear Catriana read those first few sentences now. The Dagger Man of Whistler Bay, from the unpublished memoir by Wilder Harlow, June 1989. I'm looking at myself in the bathroom mirror and thinking about love because I plan on falling in love this summer. I don't know how or with whom. Outside, the city is a hot, tarry mess. There must be someone in New York who... I wish I wasn't so weird-looking. I'm not even asking to be loved back, just to know what it feels like. I make a face in the mirror, pulling my lower lip all the way down so the inside shows on the outside. And then I pull my lower eyelids down so they glare red. Hello, I say to the mirror. I love you. Oh, what a book. What a what a book. Amazing. Loved it. Kept me hooked uh, and different. That's what I like. Now, let's go and talk to Catriona. But as I mentioned earlier, we did have some substantial problems recording this. So the quality of the well, we had issue the quality of the microphone in the first half isn't as good as the quality of the microphone in the second half. But also there was a lot of toing and froing. Things kept sort of um, the signal went, the power went, 
poor Catriona, honestly, I'm so grateful for her persevering because it was great to talk to her. And she really is, you know, one of those go-to authors for me. When she writes a book, I'm reading it. It's as simple as that. So let's go and talk to Catriona now. Well, it is my absolute hugest of huge pleasures to welcome to the podcast today Catriona Ward, whose latest fabulous book is Looking Glass Sound. Catriona, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, very excited to talk to you. Loved all your books. Now, I'm not, I didn't think I was one for horror. And yet your books, I really enjoy them. Is there such a thing as cosy horror? Is that possible? I mean, I just don't know how. (laughs) I mean, horror with heart, would that that be a, a sort of a kind of good description of it. The thing is, as I always say, and this is not a popular opinion about horror at all, but I think the kind of horror that I do, I mean, horror is a broad church, obviously, and part of the problem, I think, mm. in describing it is that the word can refer from anything to, uh, to anything from, say, Saw um, to Shirley Jackson. So it's very difficult to know where in, under the umbrella you're, you're, you're locating yourself. Yeah. But for me, the kind of horror that I write is all about... It's kind of about love, really, um, as that, um, you know, the first few lines of Looking Glass Sound um, sort of sort of pinpoint, um, because I don't think you can be afraid of something if you're not invested and if you don't feel love. What is horror but the things that are precious to you, the things you love most, um, turning on you and becoming unstable? So, And you, you can't really feel that if you don't feel the love in the first place. So... Yeah, I'm, it, it's an interesting descriptor because for me, horror is incredibly compassionate as a genre. I'm aware that's not, you know, a widely held opinion, but <laughs> that's what it mean, means to me. And that's sort of, I think horror played a huge part in um, teaching me how to feel and, and, and uh, to negotiate adult emotions when I was growing up. So for me, it's always been this incredibly rich and nuanced place, um, you know, emotionally and in, ter- in terms of kind of, ideas and sentiment yes because for me if it's horror is a young girl sitting in the bed with her head spinning around or when I was a child being forced by my sister to watch evil dead right right seeing someone swallow their stepmother's eyeball you know brilliant yeah (laughs) that that's horror yet and so yes you're right it's you very very wisely sort of lure us in caring about these characters and yes the situation is horrible but it's that care for the characters that pulls us through i think that i think the horror of horror is that anyone can end up finding oneself in it um you know one of those um one of the things that i build into Mm. my books uh very structurally and um and i think are also a hallmark of, of 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 horror are the sort of twist or as i prefer to put it the reveal this is the feeling of the world being upended of everything being turned inside out of things uh being shown uh, at at a late date to be very different from how you thought they are and that to me innately is very like is very lifelike I I think that that um that sudden feeling of being immersed in an experience and then suddenly discovering that um you've been missing a lot of key information and that lurch that that very visceral kind of feeling of the of the floor dropping away beneath you almost for, for me that's horror it's, it's the horror yeah it's it's horror it's sort of inherent in in life and that's the amazing thing with your books and it just keeps me reading because i know yes there are all these sort of reveals and things that happen as the book's going along but it's to put on the you know when the optician puts on the fresh pair of glasses and you can actually see it's like that with your books. <sighs> yeah I mean, I'm, I'm always terrified of not knowing the of not knowing what the world is like, and I feel that I feel I feel this constant um, sensation of being on the back foot and not having all the information. I have all the I'm constantly aware that there's you know that that all this, and I think that's this is a key with horror is there's a sort of there's a sort of critical um, key, if you will, that you're missing that somehow you're being denied a very specific and very vital part of the puzzle um anyway sorry um, <laughs> i'm probably that's probably more of a little window into me than anything else <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's fascinating and it's key to your books okay let's just do the real basics can you just give us a bit of a summary of this wonderful book sure thing so we we join the book in 1989 with wilder harlow who is a 16 year old boy 
And he is going on holiday to May, from New York to the coastline in May. First time he's ever been there. He's very lonely. He's a very lonely child, which I relate to very deeply. He's a very lonely, odd, weird, isolated, and, and uh, you know, uh, over-intellectual child. Um, and he doesn't have any friends, and he's never been in love. So these are two things which he feels very strongly he's, he wants to commit to this summer, is finding friends and finding love. As it happens, he finds both. And in fact, the blur, the line that blurs between those two things is one of the is one of the interesting topics I think this book explores is like the romantic quality of friendship. And um, because he he meets Harper, um, a, a young British girl, and uh, Nat, and both of whom are around his age, and they form that kind of bond that I think you only do form when you're when you're in your teens. You know, when when um, the world seems so new. And and you're discovering it for yourself for the first time and inventing it for yourself for the first time. They they do have this very intense and very uh, symbiotic bond, which ends in a terrible discovery. There is a an intruder who's going around the community of Castine, going into children's bedrooms, uh, holding a knife to the sleeping child's throat and taking a Polaroid off. And nobody knows that this intruder has been in the house. He's called the Dagger Man, the Dagger Man of Whistler Bay. Nobody knows that this man has been in the house until... He sends the pictures to the families. And there's something so horrible about that sort of double um, mm. vulnerability. And however, it turns out that he is not the most dangerous predator in the, in, in, in the neighbourhood. There's a terrible denouement and which changes all, all Wilder and his friends Nat and Harper's lives forever. It's about how all three of them deal with and or process that trauma. It's about who owns the story. Wilder goes on to university and he goes on to, to meet and kind of, you know, he's still looking for love. This is what I love about this character is, you know, despite everything that happens to him, he never gives up on human connection, on on hoping for that great, you know, like seismic blast that, um, of, 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 you know, the, the coup de foudre, as the French say, of, of love. And he thinks again that he might have found at university this represents another great betrayal where someone appropriates the story that he lived through that summer and turns it into a lurid, best-selling horror novel. So it is about who has the right to tell these stories, who has the, who has ownership of them, and and who is who is equipped to tell them best. Who, you know, why do we prefer perhaps a certain versions? of these stories because they're told by a certain person who seems to have more authority on them or not. Mm. But in the end, it's about, it's about, as, as all my books are about, you know, this, this desperate need to connect, this desperate need to share, to process and share your experience. And one of the ways that these characters do it is by narration and sharing it through writing. Um, and one of the, <laughs> one of the key themes of this book is the absolute monstrosity of writers, um, which is something that I feel um, deeply connected to myself. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a line in the book that goes, um, writers are monsters, really. We eat everything we see. And I think that, that for me, is, is true. There's a sort of consumption, a cannibalism of experience that happens with writing where you regurgitate or process and, and kind of um, catalyze experience into something completely different into an um, onto an imaginative plane i find i find it magical but i also find it yeah quite parasitic sometimes <laughs> but what really winds me up about your books is that you have the characters are superb the place is just excellent and the the sort of the the goings on is also incredible you you know you just hit all three it's really oh, it does you. wind me up I've as a failed novelist it's um yes particularly galling but I'm interested what comes first you does a character come in your mind and you think what can I do to this person and where will it be or what what's first sometimes sometimes it is like that it's a lot most of the time I think about what's most precious what could be most precious to someone and how would you if you will F that up. Um, uh, how do you how do you deprive someone uh, in the most uh, complete and sweeping way of everything that's meaningful to them? That is the that's the starting point. So you start with someone who has, you know, their hopes and dreams fairly intact, and then one by you know one by one you dismantle them and and, and strip them strip them away. With this particular book, I knew I wanted I. Um, I, <laughs> I had long conversations with my editor about about Wilder in, in in particular because I relate to him really deeply, and it was a great surprise to me that no that you know not everyone did. He's so 
he's so innocent like his over intellectualization and his and his and his 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 um you know pretentiousness is is so young he's just he just doesn't know anything and people sort of wondered whether he might be a bit unlikable i was like well I, I think I think that's kind of the point. He's a kid. He's a kid who just behaves like a and kid. And with all that's going on with his parents as well. I mean, I I felt for him. I I could understand where he was coming from. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm really glad you said that. I think um that Wilder's Wilder shows exactly why horror is the province of lonely children. Um, you know, this is his his vulnerability and and his the way that he his need for love affection and and connection is sort of it's while being one of his one of his most appealing and strongest strongest characteristics also it makes him vulnerable and that's how mm. horror gets in is through these vulnerabilities and when you finish writing uh, your books and particularly this one do the characters stay with you afterwards are they still talking to you in your head or are you able to close the door to them I don't think I ever close the door on any characters I write, actually. There's a sort of cacophony of them backstage the whole time. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the, um, the, difficult, the difficult part comes when um, you start to write the new book. And I always have uh, this three-week sort of stage where I'm writing the new book but sort of just with old characters dressed up with new names. I have to push myself beyond that phase into the new, which is where the hard work is, you know, the creation bit, where you have to, like, build entirely new people. I'm really... I take care with my characters. They should always really breathe. And I know that sounds like such a self-evident thing for a writer to say. What I, what you really want from them is the same thing I sort of want from all aspects of my books, really, is this moment where you go, oh, gosh, um... They've done something, they do something or say something which is so instinctively right, but you never could have, you never could have anticipated or predicted it. It's actually very difficult, it's actually very difficult to do, funny enough. I go so deep inside them that they, it becomes a kind of, almost a sort of form of perhaps coercion of in itself, you know, for the reader. Because you're, I often write in first person present, so you're forced into this consciousness. And you know what, it's not always comfortable to share someone else's experience to that degree. Sometimes you're, you're being forced to be witness and party to things that, that you wouldn't cho- choose to normally. Um, so I, that I think is also another another sort of aspect of why the books perhaps feel quite uncomfortable mm. is because you are being made an accomplice or at least complicit in something you perhaps didn't quite consent to. If you were starting again as a writer now, is there anything that you would change? Is there one thing that you would do differently? Yes. Um, I would finish my book quicker. So my first book took me seven, took me seven years to write, um, which is too long. I think a lot of it was spent, I don't regret it, because a lot of, most of it was spent teaching myself to write, but it is too long. And what you fall into the trap of is being unable to conceive of it as being finished ever. You know, you, it becomes something you, 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 you're constantly in, that's constantly in process, as opposed to something that can have, have a beginning, middle and an end. In fact, um, when I'm writing these days, one thing that I do to keep myself nimble and sharp is I write short stories. Um, short stories are, they don't pay a huge amount of money, but I'll tell you what they do have, is they have a beginning, a middle and an end. And you can do them, you can finish. And this this sense of completion is really important, I think, because you it's easy to get to go to do what I call going inside the computer <laughs> as in you just get sucked into the vortex you know that imaginative world behind your eyes there there is a um there's a flip side of the coin to that which is that you can get lost there and 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 wander without actually pushing yourself through to the conclusion plot is your best friend and um if but if you if you lose yourself too much in the weeds um and don't follow through with that um it can be very easy to drift for, 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 for many years, which I did. It was seven years. Seven years is too long to write a book. So my, that was my first book, Raw Blood. I would say finish the book. You can fix it later. That That's the thing. That's the beauty of writing is you make your mistakes in private. You don't have to stand up in front of a, a stadium and, and, and announce your <laughs> announce your edits. You can, you, you just, you do it backstage, privately and quietly. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, that that makes sense. Okay, well, we come to the last question, which is possibly the most important question on this podcast. And that is, as you were writing Looking Glass Sound, what biscuit was powering the words? I don't eat biscuits. I eat olives. I love an olive. I just, I can't abide a biscuit. I'm really sorry. I know this is going to alienate most of the British population, but... um. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be the one to bring this news to you. Know that I know that I'm a strange creature. It's okay. We'll we'll try and cope. My favourite thing, uh, as I come to the end of a writing day, is to um, about five p.m. to review what I've done that day, with a glass of wine and a, and a couple a little bowl of olives, and somehow it it just complete. It's become part of the ritual that completes the process of of the um and and, and crystallises the day. Well, as we're talking about olives, I do have to say my favourite olive are the ones stuffed with garlic, which I absolutely adore. And what type of olive is your go-to? Do you know what? I had one of those, exact that exact one, the, just yesterday, and it was delicious. It was so good, with a, with a, li- a little gla- tiny glass of Sancerre. And my favourite kind of olive is the Nocharella olive. Um, you, do you know the ones? They're very, very uh, large and smooth and green. Mm. They almost look like a sort of fresh fruit. Um, but they're deliciously briny. Oh, I'm going to go off immediately and acquire some of those. They sound scrumptious. <laughs> In the meantime, I just can't wait for people to read your book and just, you know, experience your very unique and wonderful way of writing because it's it's extraordinary so the book is looking glass sound and we've been talking to katriana ward katriana thank you so much thank you so much for having me philippa i I loved it and so we come on to our next book and last week i mentioned that i was reading a book that was blowing my mind that was one of just it just caught me up in its story and didn't let me go and the story changed from what i thought it was going to be but it's still a great book It's called The Change and it's by Kirsten Miller and I loved it. It's different. It's about female power. It's about being true to yourself. It's about, oh, there is a crime. There are crimes. And that surprised me because that wasn't what I thought it was going to be at the beginning, but it just added to it. I loved it. This is one of those books I'm going to keep saying to people, have you read this? Have you read this? Let me read you the blurb of this one. Widowed Nessa lives alone in her house near the ocean. In the quiet hours, she hears voices belonging to the dead, who will only speak to her. On the cusp of 50, Harriet's marriage and career imploded, but her life is far from over. In fact, she's undergone a stunning metamorphosis. Jo spent years at war with her body. The rage that arrived with menopause felt like the last straw until she discovered how to channel it. Guided by voices only Nessa can hear, the trio discover the abandoned body of a teenage girl. The police have written off the victim, but the women have not. Their own investigations lead to more bodies and a world of wealth where the rules don't apply and the realisation that laws are designed to protect villains, not the vulnerable. Now three women will avenge the innocent and punish the guilty. It's time. My goodness, this book was just incredible. Honestly, just, just get this book anyway. Chapter 1. Gone to Seed. No one had seen the woman who lived at 256 Woodland Drive since early November. Now it was late April and the house looked abandoned. A modern masterpiece, set back from the road and surrounded by gardens, it had once been the neighbourhood's biggest attraction. Real estate brokers ferrying clients contemplating a move to the suburbs had gone out of their way to drive past it. Now the gardens had grown wild and a gutter dangled from the roof. The children across the street speculated that the owner, like so many unfortunate old ladies before her, had probably been eaten by cats. Their mother assured them that couldn't have happened as she cast a worried look at the family pet. This book is brilliant. I loved it. It's about power. And it had moments in it when I was just gasping that I couldn't believe the sort of twists and turns. It's really really good get it please get all these books so there we go and next one now i read this yesterday when i was feeling ill and i loved it it was just what i needed death of a bookseller by alice slater now this book has this book has bookshops in it true crime podcasts it has well it has revelations on 
on what happens in a bookshop that I wasn't aware of and very thought-provoking observations on that. And then it's got these characters that are just, well, all, all that you want, all that you want. Here you go. Here's the blurb. Roach, bookseller, loner and true crime obsessive, is not interested in making friends. She has all the company she needs in her serial killer books, murder podcasts and her pet snail, Bleep. That is until Laura joins the bookshop. Smelling of roses with her cute literary tote bags and beautiful poetry, she's everyone's new favourite bookseller. But beneath the shiny veneer, Roach senses a darkness within Laura, the same darkness Roach possesses. As Roach's curiosity blooms into morbid obsession, it becomes clear that she is prepared to infiltrate Laura's life at any cost. Let's do the first sentence. Prologue. Laura Bunting. Her name was garden parties and Wimbledon and royal weddings. It was chintzy tea rooms, blitz spirit and bric-a-brac for sale in bright church halls. It was coconut shies and bake sales, pale skin, blonde bob, hazel eyes, curvy around five foot four in flats, a scatter of chocolate moles on her chest, neck and arms, a silver stud in her left nostril, a pinprick scar from a heel piercing on the right side of her lower lip. Her upper arms and calves were inked with faded, cliched tattoos, an anchor, a mermaid, a rose in bloom, a pair of swallows in flight, one on each shoulder swooping towards her heart, a posy of lavender on her inner wrist. Laura with her vintage tea dresses, her berets, her crimson lipstick, hand-rolled cigarettes, rose-all perfume that lingered. Laura with her poetry. Laura with her tragedy. Oh, how the rest of the team just loved their precious Laura. I loved it. I read it in a day. I was very keen to find out what would happen. The characters made me angry, made me sad. I thought it was different again. Yes, it's a sort of, is it, well, is it thriller? I don't know, there's, there's thriller elements, there's crime elements, but there's people, there's humour, it's dark humour, it's cutting, biting. Oh, yeah, very, very good. Enjoyed that a lot. Death of a Bookseller. Bravo. And now we come to the last book, The Burning by Jane Casey. If you remember last week, I had listened to The Close by Jane Casey, which was, I think, about number 10 in the series. And I really enjoyed it. So I decided I was going to go back and start at book number one. And I'm afraid it didn't quite hit the mark for me. I'm not going to tag the author in this because it's just my opinion. Probably caught me on a bad day. Let me read you the blurb first and then I'll explain why. Uh, the media call him the Burning Man, a brutal murderer who has beaten four young women to death before setting their bodies ablaze in secluded areas of London's parks. And now the fifth victim has been found. Maeve Kerrigan is an ambitious detective constable, keen to make her mark on the murder task force. Her male colleagues believe Maeve's empathy makes her weak. But the more she learns about the latest victim, Rebecca Hayworth, from her grieving friends and family, the more determined Maeve becomes to bring her murderer to justice. But how do you catch a killer no one has seen? And when so much of the evidence they leave behind has gone up in smoke. And the first sentence, she should have gone home with the others. Oh, I'm just going to read that because that's a great first sentence. OK, here we go. I liked the book. I liked the start of it. I liked some of the characters. I liked the crime to solve. By about a third of the way through, I'd worked out who'd done it. And it would annoy me that the police hadn't worked it out. It's not that usual that I work out who did it. So I don't know. So it was that. And the last section of the book is primarily a letter from somebody, which I don't know. Did I need that? Ah, the thing is, though, when I think back to book ones of many crime series, I don't love them as much as I did subsequent books. So I think I am judging this very harshly. And I know there are a lot of Jane Casey fans out there. I've loved some of her other books I've read. Was it The Cutting Place? And the last book, The Close, I really love those. So ah, I am inclined to read the next book in the series and test it and see... It, it, yeah, it didn't it didn't work for me, but I think that was me. And it's not put me off reading her book. So who's the fool there? Probably me. Uh, what do you think? 
let me know. I'd be really interested to hear more from you on that. And now we go to the absolutely wonderful Facebook group who, if you want to join us there, go to Facebook, look for the QuickBook Reviews podcast. You'd be very welcome. A couple of questions to answer and then you're in. So the question I was sent was, how long should I give a book before I decide to move on to another one? What would you do? And the hive mind of the podcast group came through brilliantly. Honestly, listen to these. I'm just going to read them all out because they are fab. Sarah said, I usually give it a couple of chapters. And if I can't get on with it, I put the book to one side and go back to it a few months later to see if I feel differently. I couldn't read Life of Pi for about one year. And when I did read it, I loved it. Claire said, I normally slog through because I don't like giving up and hope it will always get better. But really, after a few chapters, if it isn't gripping, there are too many other books to read. Sometimes I read the end, so I know that at least. <laughs> Francis said, if I reach the point where I don't care if I turn the page and find all of the characters have fallen off a cliff and died, I stop reading. Rach said, life is too short to read a book you don't like. I sack it off after a couple of chapters. Moyad said, if I'm reading it for a book club, I persevere because I enjoy the ensuing critical discussion. Otherwise, I try to do 100 pages, which I usually manage if there's at least something going for it. But otherwise, I've no shame in abandoning it and taking a break by reverting to short stories or a book I know I love in order to recover my love of reading and then start anew. Rob says he follows the page 39 rule. I didn't know that was a rule, Rob. Is that a rule of your own making or of the world? But that's, yeah, fair enough. I like that one. It's very short and to the point. Tracy said, I'm afraid I don't listen to my own advice. So my advice would be that life's too short to waste on something you don't like. So if it's not caught you within 50 pages, give up. However, I tend to keep going as I'll be damned if I'm paying for a book that I'm not reading. I'm my own worst enemy and a total hypocrite. Chris says, years, keep going, try again. <laughs> Sue says, most times if it has grabbed me in the first 15 pages, I move on. I did try with two, most recently as I posted the Atlas Six and previously Midnight's Garden. Life is too short and there are so many books I want to read, not sure if that helps or not. Jenny says, well, I would say a few chapters, but if I know someone has said this is a slow burner, be patient, then I would try the whole thing. Derek said, 100 page rule. If it's not happening by then, move on. Although, as others have said, if it's for a book club, I usually persevere to get to the end. Les says, I've had a couple in the balance right there. Couldn't bear another page of the ship based tale and gave another pages to it and loved it. Um, and Derek said, that's the trouble, isn't it? Another time you might come back to a book and find it hooks you in. I always used to try and persevere, but there are too many books I want to read and that list is ever growing. And Debbie says, if I can't wait to pick up the book again, that is a sure sign I'm not enjoying it. Then it's on my radar as a DNF. A do not finish. Then if I really don't care what happens to the characters, I just stop. I give up on, hope it gets better, or maybe I'm not reading long enough each time to get into it. Just be brutal. And yeah, I think all of those are equally brilliant and valid. It just shows I'm the same, though. If I've got a book for book club, I've got to finish it because I want to know what happens so that I don't get any spoilers and I can talk about it with people. But my level of speed reading, honestly, there are times... Yeah, there are times when I will just speed read it so fast just to get to the end. And I think maybe I need to stop reading books. I need to take the advice of the Facebook group and just stop. I like the page 39 rule. I like the page 100 rule. I like the first few chapters rule. But then, as some said, like Chris, just keep going. And as others have said, entirely right. A book may not suit you at one time, but it might be something you absolutely love. And again, as someone said, if you're told it's a slow burner, then that might be something to savour. Not all books can be ones that you just steam through. So, yeah. Yes, brilliant. If you have any questions for the hive mind, please email me at quickbookreviews at outlook.com. Be very welcome uh, on the Facebook group as well. So those are your books. Hopefully some that have given you some great ideas. What have we had? So just to recap, the books we've had this week are Arthur and Teddy are Coming Out by Ryan Love, Looking Glass Sound by Katriana Ward, The Change by Kirsten Miller, Death of a Bookseller by Alice Slater and The Burning by Jane Casey. I hope you, there are some there that you are looking forward to reading because I certainly enjoyed reading them. 
or most of them. And uh, that's it. I'm going to send you on your way. I hope you have a good week. My voice is about to go now, so I'm going to go and drink more hot Ribena. Just look after yourselves, please. Take care. And I'll just really look forward to talking to you again next week. So look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye. You've been listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.